You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. In this chapter, the Pharisees are complaining. Jesus is eating with sinners, and the Pharisees don't like it. So Jesus tells the story of the lost sheep. He tells a story of the lost coin, that each sinner is valued. They're a missing person to God. So therefore, God seeks them. And the Pharisees hear these stories and likely think, we're the 99 sheep. We're the nine coins. We're safe. We're faithful. We're safe and sound. But they're wrong. Jesus tells a third story to that end about a father and his two sons, showing there's more than one way to be lost. Verse 11, and Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far, far away country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. The son, the word gathering there, has the connotation of selling that inheritance immediately. He's gathering up the sale. He's gathering up his inheritance, which would be at that time one-third of all the father had as the younger brother. And he's selling it, livestock and land. He's liquidating it in a few days. He's probably not even taking the full amount. He's saying, I am leaving and I'm taking the money. To ask for your inheritance before your father's death would be a matter of incredible offense, both then and now. To want your father, your family's things, but not your family is deeply dishonoring. It's selfish. It's painful. It would be in their culture essentially telling them, I wish you were dead and I'm ready to move on. In a world without phones, without internets, without even like maps, you know, in, in a sense, this was not goodbye for now. This was goodbye forever. You would never make this ask if you had any plans to return. And so the son leaves. And it's easy to imagine the heartbreak. Not just the father, but the, the family is probably shook and shaken. All the friends, all the people of the community, everyone who could possibly know what has happened would say, a travesty is unfolding. I can't believe it. Why would he do such a thing? Verse 14. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods, the husk of corn that the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything. The younger son reaps what he has sowed. He gets what he deserves. He made himself fatherless, then spent all of his money and ended up friendless. There's no one who gives him anything. 
He's essentially homeless. He's living and working on this farm, trying to get in with the pig slop. And as someone in a Jewish background, this is as low as you get. Jews weren't even allowed to have pigs. They weren't allowed to eat pigs. They weren't allowed to touch pigs. And now this man who's left his father and left his God, he's sitting here dwelling in a pigsty, hoping to get in on the slop. I know we're a city church, but man, if you've ever seen pig slop, you're in a tough spot. One of my favorite pastors, the Bidi An Yabwal, says this often. If you live for yourself, soon you will end up by yourself. He's absolutely alone. There might be other people working on the farm, but he's alone. Sin makes promises it simply can't keep. It's the story of Adam and Eve. Sin makes you believe that you're in charge while it slowly makes you its slave. Yet often, when we hit rock bottom, things become a little clearer. The text is literally going to say he comes to himself. He comes to his senses, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He prepares a speech. And it appears to be, appears to be very genuine. We aren't told why the son left initially. But he did immediately spend everything he could on reckless living, a party lifestyle. And it seems in his mind, he thought sin would equal freedom. And by comparison, a future life on the farm, a future life with dad seemed terrible. But as he fulfilled that self-fulfillment fantasy and came to rock bottom, suddenly a reversal's happened. Suddenly, sin has led to hopelessness. And life with his dad again seems comparatively wonderful. And that's the story of every sinner and every time we sin. We only repent when sin suddenly feels disgusting and God suddenly seems beautiful once again. Because sin's not just, uh, repentance isn't just stopping our sin, but it's a turning to a beautiful God. That suddenly we agree with God that sin is gross and God is good. But the devil wants you to believe that when you sin, you better hide it. And you better run from God and his church, by the way. But the truth is God is the only person who can forgive your sins. It's the safest spiritual place in the world is to run to God. And God's church, a healthy church, doesn't want to help you cling to sin, but helps you want to get out, wants to help you with your sin. It seems the younger son truly repents. He comes back without excuses. He comes back ready to apologize. He's no longer clinging, trying to live a different life. He only wants a life back with dad. Verse 20. And he arose, the son, the younger son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced and he kissed. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, he interrupts him. He calls out to the servant, says, quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Apparently, God doesn't even have shoes. Put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, the one we've been saving. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Killing a calf means everyone's coming to the party. For this, my son was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. And they began to celebrate. You can catch in there. It's been years. They'll allude to it too. This isn't like a one-month journey. It's been years. They very genuinely think he's dead. This is a son back to life in the father's reality. But did you catch it? Did you catch that dad sees him not when he's at the door, not when he starts calling out for his dad in the house, not when he even gets to the gate. Dad sees his lost son from far, far off. He sees his son in the distance. And the implication is this, that since his son left, dad's been hanging out on the gate, looking down into the valley, hoping one day the silhouette of his lost son will come walking back against a sunset. Longing and praying and hoping that one day the son that he's lost would come home, that he wasn't dead, that he would turn around one day. Dad spends all of his time on the gate, watching, hoping, waiting. Every time you sin, you run from God. And here's the thing, God's not storming around the house while you're acting a fool. God isn't ignoring you. God isn't saying, oh, my phone's on mute. God's out on the fence. God's at the gate. God's waiting patiently, hoping we'll walk back home, hoping we'll forsake our sin and turn to God. And notice the son doesn't even get through his big speech. The father stops him. The man hits him like a linebacker. It says he runs, embraces, hugs his neck, kisses his cheeks. He blows him up with his love. And to be honest, church, if your view of God isn't that, you're wrong like a Pharisee. You're just wrong. All other views of God must die. You must listen to Jesus or you're just wrong. And what's right is that the God, the father, comes running after sinners. When you repent, you don't even get the whole speech out of your mouth. And this isn't just Jesus exaggerating. This is the promise of Isaiah 65, 24. It says, God answers us before we call. God hears us before we speak. God is ready to hear your confession no matter what, no matter the sin. But God's even more ready to welcome you home. God's even more ready to welcome you home, to hug you with grace. Grace is God's one-way love and forgiveness. It's not a two-way thing. Grace is a one-way thing. It's a gift to receive. It's our God who runs, who embraces, who hugs your neck, who kisses your cheeks. And here's the very best part. It's not because you were good. 
God embraces you because you're his. It's not because you were good. He runs out because it's his son. His actions didn't change his sonship. When you belong to God, you can never run away forever. He's going to come for you. He's going to greet you in your repentance. He's going to long for you all of your days. That's the gospel of God's grace. It's the gospel that shocks people, that shocks folks who think they might be Christians, are shocked into becoming actual Christians, that our faith isn't about ourselves. It's all about God or it's no faith at all. There is nothing to earn or deserve with God. Instead, the heart of the gospel is that God loves you and wants you home. The father isn't worried about a relapse. The father isn't anxious about what will happen to the money. He doesn't care. The father is welcoming home his son. His son returns unworthy to be a servant, yet the father calls him son. When we should receive nothing, we receive everything. And that's the gospel. It's not you do your part and God will do his. God does all the parts. When we are racked with guilt, we find grace in God. That's the gospel. When we're filled with shame over what we've done, we find God is ready to rewrite our story. That's the gospel. When we're confronted with the fear of being alone, just like that guy in the pigsty, we find God is opening a door to his home. That's our God. That's our never giving up God. God is waiting at the gate to love you, not to judge you. One day there'll be a judgment. It's not today. Let this story with its clarity obliterate and just destroy wrong views of God. Maybe you think God is distant and he doesn't care about what happens in your life. He doesn't care about your sin. Wrong, he cares. Maybe you think God is like a mean teacher or a mean police officer trying to catch you in your sins. Wrong, God already knows all your sins. No detective work is needed. Maybe you think God is a taskmaster, always wanting you to do more and come on, try harder, let's go. Wrong. God doesn't need you. He actually wants you. And when that sinks down, that's when you become a Christian. Listen to Jesus. God is a father who waits, who welcomes us home, who never stopped loving us even when we were far away. Did the father's love fade at the gate? No, he kept waiting. To return to God, to turn to God for the first time, there's absolutely nothing to fear and there's everything to receive. Just think, what if repentance was that easy with you? What if when your spouse, friend, roommate sinned against you, they didn't have to earn back your love and kindness? What if no one had to pay the toll of your anger, of your bitterness, of your difficulty, and that forgiveness of you was actually free? It would probably change all of your relationships, all of my relationships. It's a wild thing that we can either live as a judge and rule by fear or live as our savior and offer a hug. 
because you will be sinned against. That's life on a broken world. This isn't an easy way to live, but it might be the only true way to live. The problem with being a judge is we forget one day we will all stand trial before God. And we can either come home to God as father or one day face God as judge after rejecting his gracious offer. Yet there's another brother, an older brother. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servant, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The servant has it right. The younger brother, long thought dead as years have passed, he's safe and sound. A celebration is in order. But notice the subtle language shift in 27. The boys have been called the whole time sons of the father, sons of the father, sons of the father. And then all of a sudden the servant brings in the other reality that they're brothers. That it's his brother who's been lost. And what's the older brother's reaction? Verse 28. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. Imagine how strange a reaction to have a brother missing for what, a decade? A brother you thought was long dead is suddenly back and he's safe and sound and he's sorry and he wants to be a part of the family again. And your reaction to be angry, bitter, infuriated, refusing to even see him. He hasn't even seen his face. He's out. He doesn't even care. The brother's consumed with himself. He has no room for empathy or compassion. Eli uh, Weisel, the uh, Holocaust survivor, the writer of Night, said this, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. The brother is fully indifferent to his younger brother, and he's full of bitterness towards his father. So what's a father to do? Verse 29, and his father came out and entreated him. We don't use that word a lot in our culture. It means pleaded with him. Begging would be the definition. Father loves both sons. He comes out to beg. The best day of the father's life, maybe in decades. And he's not in the party. He's out begging his older son. The older brother answered his father, look, These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Sounds a lot like what the younger brother went and did. But when the son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father is kind and patient. He goes to the son. And we learn that the older son is not only selfish, but he's self-righteous. 
He thoroughly believes he's better than others, specifically better than his younger brother and better than his father even. A self-righteous person believes he is better than others because he lives as an earner with God and others. And if you live by earning with God, you'll always be measuring people, not loving people. If you live to earn, then life is essentially about you and your performance. How much do you earn each day? How much do you stack up against others? God becomes relegated to just another judge to impress. Remember the gymnastics meet from last week? Simone Biles, she's the star. It's her performance. No one knows the names of the judges. They're just there to watch and flip cards. But when we live by earning, when we live by performing for God and others, we become the star of the show and life becomes about us. And it puts you in competition with everybody else. In the older brother's response, we see the deadly trap of sin. It makes us blind to all reality. That's what sin does. It blinds you. It eats you up and it takes away your ability to even be rational, to even love. Look what it does. Say, first, the older brother, he can't see himself. He is wildly exaggerating. He's saying he has never disobeyed and his father has never done something nice for him and he has just served perfectly for years on end. That cannot be real for any real length of time. No one is perfect. And when we use words like always and never, you know you're about to have a very long argument. Quick marriage tip, cut out always and never, cut the fight in half. You can do it. Second, the older brother, he can't even see his other brother. He only sees competition. He refuses to acknowledge Jesus' brother. He says, that son of yours. Sin robs us of sense and love. And you can tell because he just starts rehearsing his younger brother's sins as if everyone doesn't know them. And third, the older brother, he's blind. He can't see his father's heart. He accuses his father of celebrating sin and this sinner. He's eager to blame over emphasize. Clearly the father isn't rejoicing in his son's sins. He's rejoicing his son is home and alive. And it seems the older brother, he doesn't know what it means to be a father. And he doesn't know what it means to be a father because he seems to have no idea what it means to be a son. He's been trying to earn his place in the family his whole life. Never enjoying his father's love as a son. That's true Christianity, family. We are to live as God's children, and there is no other way. There is nothing to earn or deserve. Verse 31, and the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, for this your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. The younger brother was alone. 
a hundred miles away in a pigsty, yet found his way home. The older brother was alone too, just a hundred yards away, standing in a field of goats. But he's lost, and he's not in the house. If we insist on our worthiness with God, we will always be lost. If we insist on our worthiness with God, we will always be lost. The boy who deserved nothing receives back his sonship and gets everything in the end. The boy who tried to earn his sonship still stands alone in the field, not even embracing a father who's pleading and begging him. Salvation, life with God, the gift is for those who know they are unworthy and even ill-deserving. That's the only way you can receive the gift. And this story is just plain devastating to the Pharisees. They, they see it. They see we are, we, we are the older brother. We are the people who are not going to the party. Jesus is literally sitting with sinners, kind of like, probably turning from the table to tell the Pharisees who are like standing outside the house because they don't want to be unclean with the sinners. He's like shouting a story through a window. They are not missing the point. They are feeling the devastation that we indeed are the older brother. They're just as lost in their self-righteousness as any sinner who's sitting around with Jesus. The Pharisees built their self-righteousness on being better than others in a very specific way. We take the Old Testament more seriously than you. That's how it puffed up. That's how their pride, their self-righteousness is puffed up. We really know the Old Testament. We really do the Old Testament. And if you guys would just follow us, we'd be all right. And that's why this story becomes even more devastating. Because family, the story isn't exactly new. It's a version of a story from Genesis about a father named Isaac who had two sons. The younger son, Jacob, stole the birthright, his inheritance of the older brother Esau, by trickery. And he went away for a long time. Jacob lives a long life and learns some painful lessons of his own about lies and trickery and family. And one day Jacob wants to come home. The lost, sinful Jacob that ran out in the night wants to come home. And in Genesis 33, he has to face his older brother Esau. And the tension in the chapter just builds and builds and builds as what's going to happen. What's going to happen when he hasn't seen his brother in decades and he's finally here and he's going to meet Esau, Esau the warrior, Esau the guy who could kill any animal, Esau the big bad older brother who he tricked. Will Esau kill him? That's what Jacob's thinking. And you know what happens? It's Genesis 33, 4. And Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Sound familiar? The older brother tackles the younger brother with love and forgiveness. It's the exact opposite of the story of the older and younger brother right here. It's the same words of what the father does. Literally the same. They run, they embrace, they grab the neck, they kiss, they cry. 
And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees that if you really follow the Old Testament, boy, you're missing it. Because this is what the Old Testament is teaching. And y'all are way off base. You wouldn't worry that I eat with sinners. You'd be hugging and kissing them because they're coming home. You'd be a reconciler instead of self-righteous older brother. But because you're an older brother who's not like Esau, you need redemption too. Because you're just as lost as anyone else. And all of this puts Jesus in this glorious spotlight. Because we see the problem with the older brother isn't just his bitterness. The problem is informed by the two other stories of Luke 15, of the lost sheep and the lost coin. The problem with the brother is how many years were going to pass before the older brother ever went looking for his younger brother. How many decades? Was he going to leave his brother out there to die and never go and get him? Jesus is our true older brother. He's the shepherd who goes for the sheep. He's the woman who finds the lost coin. He's the character missing in this story. Because in each story, someone is lost and sought and found. And in this story, it's left open because Jesus is the inverse. He's the older brother we all need, but we don't deserve. That's the story of every Christian. That whether you found yourself in a pigsty alone or in a goat field alone or anywhere else alone, it's Jesus who taps you on the shoulder and says, you ready to go home? I'll carry you if need be. In fact, I prefer that. It's what he does to the sheep. The coin doesn't roll home. And the truth is no person comes home without God tapping them on the shoulder and walking them on back. Listen to how Hebrews 2 describes our Jesus. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. Those who believe in Jesus, we now have the same father as Jesus. We are part of the family of God. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, the church, his brothers and sisters. Maybe you've never thought about Jesus as literally your older brother. He is. He's 100% man. He's 100% God in one body. We don't deserve Jesus. We can't earn Jesus. Instead, he's a gift and a gift that comes for us. And Jesus often comes for us when we hit rock bottom and turn around. Jesus comes for us at any point in our life. But we must respond. We must turn and be with Jesus. We must be like the younger brother, not like the older brother. Go with Jesus. If you hear his voice today, don't delay. But repent, drop your sin and run. Don't walk after our Lord. Jesus is the greater Esau. He's the brother we need and he has come running for you. And he's welcoming you home. No matter what you've done or where you've been, whether you're rebellious or a practitioner of cold religion, he welcomes you home. The door is open. We don't know how the older brother's story ends. They leave it open-ended. Come home, church.